chapter 9, if you have your Bible, and follow along with me as we walk through verses 14 to 17. And as I, as I think about these verses, I'm reminded that in our home right now, we're in full-on party planning stage. Um, as you are in the Hall home and in the Davis home, too, you guys are finished with a party and planning another party coming soon, right? Uh, it's, wedding, it's wedding season at our house, so our oldest daughter, Emma, We'll be getting married, Lord willing, in about 12 weeks. So I've never taken 12 weeks to plan a party. But um, maybe you should, you know. Maybe that's how all parties should be planned. Um, but we're looking forward to that day with a lot of excitement and a lot of joy and a little bit of stress. But um, we're looking forward to that. And at the beginning of this uh, interaction that we find in these verses, starting in Matthew 9:14, we remember that Jesus is at a party. Here And he's in the home of Matthew. Remember, Matthew is the tax collector who basically it was kind of a sellout to the Roman government and had, had been you know, stealing from the people and taking taxes, and he was a kind of a turncoat for the Jewish people, and yet Jesus still calls him to become a disciple. And this is the third, if you look at all of Matthew chapter 9, this is the third uh, of a triad of opposition. Look back at 9. Uh, verse 3, where we have the scribes, and Jesus has just forgiven a man, and, and we meet these scribes, and they oppose in this story Jesus' divine authority. They, they oppose, they say that he's committing blasphemy because he says he can forgive sins. And then if you jump down to the next story, verse 11, we meet this group called the Pharisees, and what they do is they oppose Jesus' inclusive mercy, his mercy uh, that extends even to sinners, even the most egregious sinners. And then in verse 14, we have the Baptists. Okay, these are John the Baptist's disciples, otherwise known as the Baptists. And they oppose Jesus' laxness or his lack of religious seriousness as he trains his disciples. And so there's this kind of threefold opposition. Uh, that becomes, if you will, a teaching point in Matthew chapter 9 on the nature of discipleship. What does it mean, Jesus? Jesus is teaching, what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be someone who follows him? That's what a disciple is, someone who follows Jesus. So in his interaction with the scribes, Jesus showed that discipleship means having your sins forgiven by the living God, having your sins forgiven by the only one who can forgive them. And Jesus says he's that one who can forgive sins. Being a disciple means having your sins forgiven by the living God. In his interaction with the Pharisees there in, in verses 9 to 13, Jesus shows that he has come to call even the most flagrant sinners to follow him. He has come to save those who need it. Not those who have it all figured out on their own. He's come to save sinners. And now in his third interaction here with the disciples of John the Baptist, Jesus shows that discipleship is a new way of life. A new way of life that is marked by, as I put it, a flavor. A flavor of hope-filled joy not in the least due to the fact that we are now people who've been forgiven of our sins and called into discipleship no matter what we've done in the past. John the Baptist, here's, here's his disciples, but if you remember, John the Baptist 
was Jesus' predecessor. So if you go back to Matthew 3, you can read about him and meet him. But it says there that he had come to prepare the way of the Lord. John was a, John was a serious dude. Okay? He was a serious, prophetic, Elijah-like, fire and brimstone, ascetic prophet. Like He wore camel hair and he ate locusts and wild honey. Uh, and if that's your diet, that's a new diet. I don't know if you guys have heard of that. It's whole something, right? Not whole 30. Um, he was intense, right? He was serious and radical. And like him, um, his disciples were likely the same. And, and like Jesus, he had disciples. In fact, some of Jesus' own disciples had previously been John's disciples, But others of John's disciples continued to follow John, even after he was arrested. Even after he was killed, they continued to follow his teachings. We actually meet some of them. Paul meets some of them in the book of Acts. Some of those who'd never grasped the connection that that John himself was trying to make between him and Jesus. So like their teacher, these disciples were serious about following God. They wanted to follow God in a radical way. And they walked through the most intense, probably most Um, rigorous discipleship curriculum around, the school of John the Baptist. So naturally, they're they're curious about Jesus. Perhaps they even had seen Jesus interacting with John, maybe when he was baptized. Maybe they'd met Jesus and spoken with him. But when when they come to observe Jesus and his school of discipleship, they come on the scene and they see Jesus and his disciples at a party. A party where Uh, where people are having fun and being joyous and it's all these sinners and they can't believe the lack of discipline. You can imagine them just going like, are you kidding me? These disciples of Jesus are going to parties and they're eating and drinking. Some discipleship school this is, right? I mean, fasting, fasting isn't even part of this curriculum. I mean, do these disciples, do they even pray? Like, do they do anything serious All good discipleship schools, the Pharisee school, John the Baptist school, all these discipleships start fasting from day one. This is basic stuff. So 9.14, this is what they say to Jesus. Why do we and the Pharisees fast? Why do we, we, you know, these could have been regular weekly fast, times where they went without food for a, a period of time in order to focus on God and pray. Why do we and the Pharisees Fast. Some, some of the ancient Greek manuscripts actually say a lot. So like, why do we fast a lot? You don't even know how much we fast. We've, we fast a lot. But your disciples don't fast at all. And Jesus' response, though it, it might be kind of confusing to us or a little bit opaque to us, it's actually quite profound because Jesus here gives crucial insight now into the flavor, as I call it, the flavor of the kingdom, and that is joy. The flavor of God's kingdom is joy, and that's what he wants to articulate to these people now. So the first, he gives us three metaphors, three images, and the first is that of a bridegroom. So look at verse 15. It says, Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. And in this this image, in this metaphor, Jesus actually taps into some of the most beautiful imagery that we have of the relationship between God and his people in the Old Testament, where, where, where God is pictured as a husband to his people. So one example of that is in Hosea chapter 2. 
It says, in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. And there's this picture in the Old Testament that, that God loves his people like an adoring husband loves his bride and brings her to himself into his home and cherishes her and nurtures her and cares for her. This is the kind of relationship that God has with his people. And even, even more, the, the imagery perhaps pictures a wedding in Jesus' day. And back then, a wedding was a true celebration. It often lasted an entire week. Can you imagine going to a wedding for a week? It was more like a family reunion. You came from far and wide and you celebrated during that whole week family and goodness and the blessings of God on you and his faithfulness. So, so a bride's family would prepare the wedding and they would, they would prepare the feast for, for weeks like we are, maybe months ahead of time. And then when the day came, the bride, beautifully adorned with an entourage of, of, of virgins, would come to the wedding and they would, they would arrive. And then finally, when the groom arrived, that is when the party started. And oftentimes, the best man of the groom would, would go ahead, one of the groom's attendants, he would go ahead to announce the coming arrival of the groom, of the bridegroom. He's coming. Get ready. Prepare. This was a gospel or a good news announcement that would, would create at the wedding a feast or, or an atmosphere of excitement and anticipation. We went to a wedding a few weeks ago, and there's the, you know, they had the wedding ceremony, then afterwards they do photos, right? You've been in weddings and you have to stand for the photos and smile a hundred times. But between the, between the ceremony and the reception, there was a photo time. Well, everybody can't be part of the photos, so they, had, they asked all the guests to go out in the courtyard. And basically what you have to do is wait. For what? Dinner, right? You're waiting for dinner. What do you do when you wait for dinner? You fast, Right? So everybody's waiting for dinner. They're waiting for the, the, the party, the wedding party to come so that they can enjoy dinner. It's the same kind of anticipation, but even more so that was created at a wedding in ancient Israel. And so what Jesus is doing here is picturing himself as the bridegroom and John the Baptist as this best man who has gone forward and said, hey, the bridegroom is coming. Get everything ready for him. The party is about to start. Be prepared for his arrival. But until the bridegroom arrives, the party hasn't started. You don't get to go through the buffet until the bridegroom is there. You have to fast in anticipation of the celebration and the feasting that is to come. So, so in other words, what, what Jesus is saying here to John's disciples is, guys, Wake up, because right now, what is happening is what John the Baptist was preparing you for. The bridegroom is here. It's time to celebrate. So by using bridegroom imagery, Jesus makes at least two important points about the kingdom. And the first is this, that the kingdom of God is like a celebration, kingdom of God is like a celebration, the king's presence, and his, his presence is what ushers in the kingdom of heaven. His presence is much more like a feast than it is like a fast. The flavor of God's kingdom is joy. 
However, I want to throw two caveats in here as we kind of consider what Jesus is saying here. As these uh, people come and ask him about fasting. Jesus is not saying in this passage that Christians shouldn't fast. In fact, just three chapters earlier in, in Matthew 6, Jesus critiqued those who fasted but who made a show of it, right? They would fast so that other people could see it and think they were great. Because they, what they were trying to do was simply to be recognized by others. So Jesus critiques that, but he doesn't say, okay, my disciples, no fasting for you. Rather, he corrects a broken version of fast, fasting by offering a corrective. He says this, when you fast, but when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face. In other words, take a shower, Put on your nice clothes, comb your hair if you have it, put on makeup if you need it, but look nice. Go about your day as you normally would and don't make a big show of it. That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So for Jesus, fasting is all about a relationship with our Father, a relationship that should be marked by joy. Okay, so to be clear, Jesus, Jesus never commands his disciples to fast, but he expected that they would. But when you fast, and even in this passage, he says, there will be a day when I'm taken away, when the bridegroom is gone, then they will fast. Now, at least two occasions in the book of Acts, we see his disciples fast. So Jesus isn't forbidding fasting. Rather, Jesus is saying that there's an appropriate place and time for fasting. And guess what? A wedding is not the right place to fast. It's a place to feast. So Jesus says to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? No, you don't mourn or cry or weep at a wedding unless, you know, you're the, you're the guy that got left in the dust for the groom, you know, and they invite you or something like that. Then maybe you can cry a little bit, but try not to, Okay. The wedding guests shouldn't mourn if the bridegroom is there. If the party is in full swing, it should be a time of celebration. So the central tone or flavor of the kingdom is joy because at its core, it's a restored relationship with God. And when Jesus invites us into his kingdom, he's inviting us to a wedding feast, not to a funeral, to enjoy the bountiful, generous joyful goodness of relationship and celebration. God's kingdom is one of invitation to all who would come and accept God's hospitality. Which leads to Jesus' second major point with this illustration is that the kingdom is already, but not yet. Verse 15, the last part, Jesus says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, from the wedding guests, and then they will fast. And here Jesus is really looking forward. He's anticipating his own death. That time when he as the bridegroom will be taken away from his disciples for a short time. Then he's resurrected. But then 40 days later he ascends into heaven where again he is taken away from his disciples. So, so Jesus is looking to, towards a time between his first coming and his future second coming. And later in the book of Matthew in verse 25, when Jesus again picks up this imagery calling himself a bridegroom, he connects it with a picture of his future return when the bridegroom will come back 
And that time will coincide with judgment and separation of sheep on one side and goats on the other and some coming into the wedding feast and others being left on the outside. And we call this time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming still future. We, we find this time that we presently find ourselves in. We call it the already, not yet. Which means that Jesus has inaugurated his kingdom by coming into the world. The king has come. And in his first coming, he accomplished the work that he intended to do by conquering the kingdom of darkness and purchasing the forgiveness of sins for his people. And in his second coming, he will in the future come to judge the living and the dead, to do away with evil, to do away with sin and rebellion and suffering and guilt and tears and shame and disease and death, to do away with all of these things and to make all things new. Does that sound like a party? That sounds like a feast. But until then, Till that day, we still live with all of those things, even though the king has come, even though he has given us forgiveness of sins, even though he has given us his spirit, we live in the already not yet. Okay, now, what does all that have to do with fasting? Well, in the already not yet, our joy is accompanied by mourning. And so followers of Jesus, Jesus is saying, he's expecting that we will fast because we miss our king because our king isn't here with us and we're longing for a day when he will return and so we fast. We don't just fake it till we make it. We don't just attempt to live out kind of a shallow Pollyannish kind of faith that refuses to acknowledge all the difficult parts of life on planet earth because life is difficult. Life is full of suffering. And even though the Apostle Paul commanded us to rejoice in the Lord always, he repeats that several times in the book of Philippians. In 2 Corinthians 6, he notes that his own life was sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. In this world, in the already not yet, we as disciples hold those two things in tension, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrow and joy walk hand in hand, because sorrow is real, the king has not yet come, he is gone, and yet we still have comfort. Blessed are those who mourn, for they what? Shall be comforted. In the already not yet, our joy is accompanied by mourning, but in the already not yet, our joy is grounded in hope. And so the flavor, the, the tenor, the tone of the kingdom is joy, but there are different kinds of of joy. There's a difference between a hopeful joy, a, an anticipatory joy, a joy in the waiting, and a joy that is fully realized. So right now, there's a difference in, in my life and the life of our family between the joy we have right now because our daughter is going to get married in September. We have a real joy, but that joy is a hope-driven joy, a hope-anchored joy, a joy that rests in something that is happening in the future, a not-yet experience. But in 12 weeks, when we celebrate with her on her wedding day, there will be a realized joy. See the difference between the two kinds of joy. And now we live in this hope filled, hope-driven joy, and one day we won't need hope anymore because we'll be living in it in real time. 
But for Jesus' disciples, fasting is a practice of anticipation. It's a, it's a practice of hope. A fasting that looks forward to the day when we'll sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb and feast in the fullness of joy. And fasting now is a deliberate, hopeful waiting for the wedding feast that is coming. You know, on Christmas Day, Christmas morning, most years, I will skip breakfast on Christmas morning. And I'm a big breakfast guy. If somebody cooks me a big breakfast, I will usually eat it. And on Christmas morning, even though I'm starving and there's usually a bounty of good breakfast foods provided, I'll skip breakfast on Christmas morning. But, but I don't skimp because I'm angry about the Christmas present that I didn't get or because I'm seriously spiritual or because I'm sad or because I'm on a hunger strike. Okay, I, I've, I fast or I skip breakfast on Christmas morning in recognition that in a few short hours, a feast will magically appear in our kitchen. I don't know where it comes from, but it shows up every year. In a few short hours, that, that feast will magically appear, and it's worth the wait, even worth the hunger pangs, which I'll experience for a few hours. In fact, those hunger pangs that I experience in those few short hours communicate how good the meal is going to be. If I didn't think it was going to be good, I'd have a big breakfast and not worry about it. But I know that ham and that potato casserole and those rolls and the green beans and all the pies are going to be worth it. So I fast. And I think Jesus is saying something similar about fasting here. His disciples will fast when he is gone to both mourn his absence and look forward to his return and the joy that will come with it, a joy that is better than all of the short-lived and superficial pleasures like eating that we experience in this world. All right, so that's metaphor number one. To make the point even further, though, Jesus gives us two more meta metaphors, and you can thank him that they're connected, so we're going to treat them at the same time. And it's the metaphors of garments and wineskins. So he, he talks about this bridegroom coming, and in the days when the bridegroom's gone, he'll fast. And then in verse 16, he begins to say this, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed, but New wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. And, and these are two kind of real-world, powerful images that Jesus gives to his listeners, and they all would have understood exactly what he was talking about. Like, yeah, I, I get that. I understand it. And in regard to old garments, he's basically saying you shouldn't attach new, new patches to old cloth. You should only attach new patches to new cloth. But if you... If you attach a piece of cloth that's unshrunk, that hasn't been washed and shrunk, and you put it on old cloth to cover up a hole, as soon as that patch shrinks, it will just create a bigger hole. Old patches go with old garments, new patches with new garments. Pretty basic, pretty common sense, but think about it. How many of you would put a patch on a new garment? Usually doesn't need it, right? It's new. 
Of course, you can buy jeans with holes in them now, but that's the point. You don't use patches. You don't patch a new garment because it doesn't need it. And I think that's Jesus' point. The old garment is worn out and a new garment is here. So what do you do when you replace something old? You throw the old garment away, out with the old, in with the new. Now, I know that's really difficult for you hoarders out there to understand, but you can actually throw old stuff away when you buy something new. Out with the old, in with the new. Now, he then goes on to reiterate the point by using this example of wineskins, doubling down, really, on on the point he's making. Wineskins were bags. They were usually made from animal hides. They could sometimes be made out of animal organs, like a stomach or something like that. But they, were, they over time, would grow bit brittle and fragile as they held wine or whatever. And new wine, which was wine that was still fermenting, and because it was continuing to ferment, it was continuing to put off carbon dioxide. So if you put that inside of an old, brittle wineskin, the wineskin would fill and then it would burst. So best practice was place it in a new, supple wineskin that would easily expand while the wine was fermenting. And putting new wine in an old wineskin was just plain foolish. So common sense dictated against it. Only an idiot would do that. Because not only would you ruin a wineskin, you'd lose all that new wine. I think the point is this. Recall that John the Baptist's disciples have accused Jesus of laxness, of not being very serious about the rituals and the law and the disciplines that, that true, serious followers of God should practice and observe. And in response to this accusation of laxness, Jesus tells them that they're missing the point. He's not being lax by failing to fast during a wedding feast. He's not being being unserious by refusing to patch up old garments with new cloth or or refraining to put new wine into old wineskins. In all these scenarios, Jesus is being wise by exercising common sense because he sees what's actually happening. He understands the kingdom and they don't see it. Common sense says that there are times when the new reality is not compatible with the old way of doing things. And John's disciples were focused on Jesus' neglect of the worn-out garments, his neglect of the brittle wineskins. And they were putting forth a fasting that was an expression of ritual and religion and self-righteousness. But Jesus is saying these are all things of the past. If we're going to be citizens of the kingdom, we put all those things away because the king has come and he's brought a kingdom of joy through the forgiveness of sins. So you can embrace the new king and his kingdom and the joy that it brings, or you can, you can cling to those old ways of ritual and, and religion and self-righteousness. Paul, Paul addresses this in the New Testament letter of Colossians. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you, in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. In other words, people were saying, hey, you're not really a serious Christian if you're not observing this thing or this thing or eating this thing or not drinking that thing. He says, don't let anybody pass judgment on you. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He's the king. Let no one disqualify you, insisting 
on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, to Christ, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. You see, the life of the kingdom is too big to fit into our traditions, into our idea about what religion should be. And so we must be careful not to pass judgment on fellow disciples because of things they do or don't do that are matters of conscience, not command. Rather, we are to seek joy for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters. It's a joy that's found only in the king. So let me, let me try to take all this, wrap it up, and, and just give a few concluding thoughts. As human beings, we're creatures of habit. And we often equate life in the kingdom of God with our traditions, with, with ways of doing things that we've always done. It's always been done that way. We can't change it because this is the way that my mom did it and my grandma did it. Ways of doing things we grew up with become embedded in our understanding of, of what discipleship is or, or, or something that we went through that God did in our lives and we say that's the standard of discipleship. If you, if you grew up in a time when being an American and being a Christian were nearly identical, can I just break it to you that that is not the way anymore? That's just not how our culture is anymore. We, many of us grew in a time when those things were identical. Our current moment for us then is pretty confusing. It's pretty disorienting because those things have been disconnected because America and God's kingdom are not coextensive. They're not the same thing. So when those things get separated, the truth that has a ton of implications for how we understand and experience the kingdom. Or you might feel like there's certain ways of doing church that are correct. Like what the music is like, or what the preacher is like, or what version of the Bible we read out of, or what color the carpet is, whatever. We all have ideas of how church ought to be done, but sometimes our preferences are just old wineskins that need to be thrown out to make room for the way the kingdom will be expressed in the next generation. So we have to work hard, especially if we're older, more mature, and I'm not saying I'm old or mature, for those of you who are older, more mature believers, you have to work hard not to lay unbiblical burdens on especially the younger generation of things that are just perhaps maybe preferential or cultural. And we all have to beware of teachers and influencers who require more of us than Christ required of us, who put burdens on us that we shouldn't have to carry. Galatians 5 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Okay, so that's the last offensive thing I'm going to say this morning. Everything else from here is clean sailing. Fasting. Is fasting a part of life in the kingdom? You may wonder, then, if it is, should I be practicing it? And the answer to that question is actually really complex and personal. We as a war counselor, 19 men meeting together every other week, we've been talking about fasting 
reading a book on it for the last three months, and I still don't think we've answered this question. It's, it's complex, and it is personal, so I'll simply give you one warning. I'm going to give you two warnings. The first is don't fast if you have a medical condition that will make it really bad for you to fast, okay? I'm just going to say that as a caveat so you don't come back and sue me later. That's the first warning. The second warning is don't fast if you are doing it to perform. If you're doing it so others will think better of you or think that you're a great, strong Christian. Don't do it so that others will see you or if you're doing it to earn something with God. If I fast, God will think better of me. If I fast, God will give me something. He'll bless me. Don't do it if that is your mindset because those are things that Jesus himself warns us against. However... I think you should consider fasting as part of your just life of discipleship if you want a deeper hunger for God, if you want to know him more, if you want to expand your capacity for joy, fasting is a great way to ask him for that. I would encourage it if you're interested in those things. And in that vein, Another question that we all have to ask is, do we see God's kingdom as a kingdom of joy? We need more joy. You people don't smile enough. Just kidding. I smile more than I do. We need to, to, to realize that joy is the flavor of the kingdom, but what does joy look like for you? What does joy look like in your life? Is it a flavor of who you are? Perhaps you should begin by asking God for joy. Do we go, God, give me a deeper joy in you? Do we pursue joy by practicing thanksgiving, saying thank you for everything that God gives us in all circumstances? Because after all, we are commanded to rejoice always. How do we do that? What does it look like to be a people who are joyful because we're citizens of a joyful kingdom? And then finally, do you look forward to Jesus' return? Do you look forward to the bridegroom coming again? Do you look forward to that feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb, where we will celebrate with him, where we will, we will enjoy the hospitality of a good father and the Lamb as they welcome us into their kingdom? And they, when he comes and makes all things right, do you long for the bridegroom to return? This longing should be a driving force in our joy. It should be a driving force in our fasting. It should be a driving force in our discipleship. As we come this morning again to the table, we take the Lord's Supper pretty much every week around here, communion. And the Lord's Supper, we believe, is a symbol, a symbolic meal that points us to the sacrifice of Christ who took on our sins by taking on our punishment, by going to cross on our behalf. So we take bread and we remember his body which was broken on our behalf. We take juice and we drink it remembering his blood that was poured out on our, our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul reminds us that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So even in this meal, we not only look back and remember his first coming when the bridegroom came and sacrificed himself for us, but we look forward to the next coming when the bridegroom will return and make all things new and welcome us to his table, even as he welcomes us now.
So I invite you to come to the table. Let's pray. Our Father, we do come before you, and this is some heavy stuff this morning as we try to make sense of these metaphors and these teachings and these words. Lord, we long for joy. And I know for me, Lord, I struggle with joy every single day. I struggle to find joy in a world that seems broken beyond repair when there's divisiveness and tension and anger and vitriol everywhere. When there's war, unjust war and genocide and human trafficking and abortion and Lord, all these things that point to the fact that we live in a world that's fallen and broken. We live in an already not yet. But Lord, we ask you to give us a taste of hope-filled joy that one day we will sit with you at the kingdom, in the kingdom, at, the, at your table. We look forward to that day, Lord. We look forward to that day with joy and with hope and with longing. And yet we find ourselves here in today. So we ask for your grace. We ask for your strength to live in the already not yet. We confess that we don't know how to do that very well all the time, but we pray, God, that you would teach us, that your spirit would guide us and walk with us as we figure out, as we follow you, figure out how to live in the kingdom and follow you as your disciples. God, today we ask for grace, we ask for joy. And Lord, as we fast, if we fast, Lord, we pray that we would fast and know you more. We would fast because we long for our king to return. We would fast because we want to be better representatives of your kingdom here on earth. Would you fill us, renew us, shape us, infuse your joy into us even this morning, we pray. We pray it all in the name and for the glory of your son, Jesus.